It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, novelist Mike DeCapity. You know, I've become much more interested in the idea of just putting things together. I like things that feel put together more than I like things that feel written from A to B to C. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I've always liked collage. Like, I respond to that idea of just, you know, making something out of different parts. And, and, and so when I, when I wrote Creamsicle Blue, I, I, I felt like, oh, now I found my form. Uh, this is this this is congenial to me, you know. This is it's because one of the things that you're always looking for as a writer is a way to make it easier because it's so hard. Writing is so hard, and and you know it's just really hard. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast, where we speak to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can stream past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast, always with the numeral two, through iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and learn about new episodes from our Fun to Know page on Facebook. On today's show, it's the second appearance by writer Mike DeCapity, whose latest novel, Jacket Weather, was published in late 2021 by Soft Skull Press, home to works from everyone from Dennis Cooper to Noam Chomsky. DeCapity is originally from Cleveland and is the son of Raymond DeCapity, a writer whose well-reviewed work was first published in 1960. Mike DeCapity moved from Cleveland to Brooklyn in 1987 and was in the circle of fellow Clevelanders Pair Ubu, the seminal art punk group. DeCapity's poetic fiction would appear in various publications over the years, and his naturalistic slices of life have always revealed a deep connection to music and has made fans of an impressive range of artists from various backgrounds. Uh, Jacket Weather contains blurbs from filmmaker Kelly Riekert, Sonic Youth bassist Lee Ronaldo, and novelist Lucy Santi. Capity's 1998 novel, Through the Windshield, drew raves for Mike's story of kicking around with small-time gamblers in the city of Cleveland. An excerpt from Mike's unpublished follow-up, Ruined for Life, would appear along with his father's work in Harper's The Italian-American Reader. And now, Jacket Weather arrives, further refining Capity's anecdotal storytelling to a fine point. The novel centers around a romance DeCapity begins with June, a figure of romantic interest DeCapity had known casually back in the 80s when she was doing PR for Pear Ubu. Now, decades later, DeCapity is taken back by the strong attraction he feels to a woman extracting herself from a curdled relationship. With the lightest of touches across bite-sized chapters, DeCapity casts an alluring story of unsentimental optimism in the just-dimming light of middle age. Publishers Weekly said, Spare and lyrical, DeCapity has a poet's eye for the city's majestic details, and it illustrates how his characters come to see things differently over the years, a worthwhile meditation. And from Kirkus Reviews, So very real, a sad but sweet song about the uncertainty of middle age and how funny it is when time slips away. We try and keep things loose and casual on these Fun to Know interviews, so much so people often think I'm just interviewing friends, but here I actually am interviewing one of my closest friends, although it's been decades since I've hung with Mike after work every Monday, like I did in San Francisco, where Mike would serve some ambitious entrees and uh, and would talk movies, music, and writing. But the last time I talked to Mike was just before pandemic restrictions hit in 2020. Now, three years later, Mike was in Philly to do a reading with Warhol biographer Victor Bacris. And we sat down at the kitchen table the following day to record this interview, where we talk about jacket weather, seasonal memories, 90s Dylan, middle-aged love, writing about sex, and divining renewed inspiration. Let's head over now to that conversation. Should we start this? Yeah. Sure. Am I sitting in the right place? You're sitting in the right place. I can hear you well. Uh, I might have to reach over and stop the bike from buzzing at some point, but I think everything's good. Okay. 
And uh, welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. We're back at the kitchen table studios of the Fun to Know podcast with New York writer Mike DeCapity here. Michael DeCapity uh, has uh, uh, written his third novel recently. Is this your third novel or fourth novel? It's my third novel, third. but my second one published. The latest novel, uh, Jacket Weather, which I, I just finished uh, a few days ago and uh, just in love with. It's, a, it's a, a real beautiful piece of writing, a very... Uh, it's very quickly engaging, uh, quickly grabbed into it. It's uh, a look at the fragments of Mike's life in the last 10 years, all sort of uh, put together in this uh, dreamlike ode uh, centered around a, a relationship he had uh, in his, uh, has in his 50s. It started in his 50s. And uh, my wife was asking what jacket weather it might mean. And I, 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 I think I was correct when I said, you know, consider your whole life a year, you know. Uh, well, exactly. Mike's, Mike's life right now, like, he's in jacket weather. He's, it's the October of his life. <laughs> exactly. I thought that was really obvious. You know, I thought that, that that might even be too obvious to use as a title. Um, but you're the only person so far who seems to have made that connection. I've explained, I've explained it to a, a few people, and, and uh, they, they, they all liked that idea. Like, oh, that's great. Yeah. So, uh, well, well, well uh, welcome to the, um, the microphone here. Thanks, the fun to thanks. Know. It's <laughs> nice to be here at the table. <laughs> Mike, actually, uh, 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 much less uh, prestigious part of Mike's life would be uh, serving me dinner every Monday night in San Francisco <laughs> back in the 90s, me and Mike. Uh, that's where we first met out in San Francisco. Yeah. and uh, We had a Monday night hang. Yeah, yeah, but uh, Mike now is uh, back in his uh, New York... Uh, his New York home, and uh, we're, we're very glad to have him here, and I think you're going to start off reading something from uh, the novel Jacket Weather. Is it, is it, is it, could you call this a memoir? I only ever conceived of it as a novel, even though everything in it is, everything in it is true. You know, I move things around, or... You know, I mean, it's definitely constructed, and it's constructed with an end in mind. In other words, I'm using the materials of my life as though they are the materials that you'd make a collage out of or something. You know, um, they're found materials, but the, the aim isn't to set out to write... I mean, the aim isn't to write about me. The aim is to write about mortality and time and the nature of, you know, time and... Um, and the nature of light. And there's a lot about light, yes, and the changing season, you know. It's a very scientific um, book in some way. <laughs> <laughs> um, the so scientific poetry of it, Mike DeCamp. So, yeah, it goes back and forth between, um, you know, it's built of these little fragments that are, that are uh, either observations of the weather or fragments of conversation that I, I overhear at the gym. And um, so this is the kind of, this is what I want to read to you now. This is the first of those encounters in the book. And uh, this is a glimpse of what lo locker room talk really is like. You know, we've heard a lot about locker room talk in, in recent years and what that is. And this is what I've found it to be. When I walked in on Thursday, Lou was sitting at his locker, still red from the steam. He had three cans of coffee for me, in exchange for the magazines I'd been taking him from work. Every week I took him five copies of People and Entertainment Weekly, and he gave them to women on his rounds. I didn't want anything for them, but he was Italian, so he enjoyed transactions. He was at the age when a person starts putting things aside for people and carrying them around in bags. Pieces of interest clipped from newspapers, and coupons, and canned tomatoes. Come to think of it, so was I with these magazines. This is how it starts. I thanked him for the coffee and went to my locker. Where'd you go this weekend, he said from his row. Where'd you go? What'd you eat? Nowhere. I cooked. What'd you make, pasta fazool? No, I made linguine with clams. The red? No, the white. What'd you do, he said. So I made my way to the end of the row. I said, I softened a shallot in oil. I put red pepper flakes. Parsley, he said. 
Yeah, parsley, oregano, then half a cup of white wine, and the juice from the clams. What'd you use? The can? <coughs> Snows? Cento. Oh, you bought the clam sauce? No, the chopped clams. I didn't know they made that. I have to look out for that. Yeah, so I put those in about a minute before I drained the pasta and squeezed some lemon. Lou frowned, approving. He was applying his facial cream. We were naked this whole time. I went back to my locker, got into my gear. I said, what about you? Where'd you go? I cooked. Yeah, what'd you make? Linguine with clams. The white? No, I made the red this time, with the whole baby clams from the can. What kind? Doxies, he said. What kind of linguine did you buy? Barilla, I said. You? The Checo. That's good pasta. The Checo's great, but it's two fifty a box. They got it Western beef, dollar a box. It's interesting that that these uh, these older Italian American gentlemen sort of wander their way in, into your uh, into, into your book. Of course, they don't wander them in. You you invite them in, um, but they they really bring to life uh, this Italian American thread that's gone through your work. Your work was uh, just a, a a few years back in the Italian American Reader. You're the son of Raymond DiCapiti, uh, author of The Lost King, and uh, a fantastic Italian American writer himself. And I, I thought. Uh, that uh, it was great that the Italian-American voices come ba back into this work again. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, it so happens that um, right when I started getting to know these guys at the gym, I'd been going to this gym on 14th Street for a while, but um, just as I was starting to be included in, in their conversations, Right around that time, my, fa my father died and uh, in Cleveland. And um, closing off uh, a uh, kind of window that I'd had on the past um, because he was alive for things that and able to see them as they, as they occurred, you know, that I, that I had no other, um, nobody else to ask about. Um, and so I'll... These guys, although younger than my father, were a lot older than me, and so they kind of became my informants on the past. And it's also cool that, like, one of the things about New York City is that you're always shoulder to shoulder with history, you know. Um, At one point in that novel, you have a line something about a, a New York City has become a, a giant museum to itself. Or... Well, it is sort of like that now. Yeah, I meant that in a negative way, but um, but the history. But there was something cool everywhere. about yeah. like going to the being able to go to the locker room and two guys are um, I don't know arguing about Ruby and the Romantics or they're one of them is talking about when he saw um, uh, you know one of um, one of those review shows at the Brooklyn Fox and saw like, I don't know, like Jackie Wilson or something like that, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, these guys are witnesses to things that I would like to have been around for. Sure. I could imagine these uh, older Italian American gentlemen's really appreciating uh, a Jackie uh, Wilson as well. Cause Jackie Wilson had that, that operatic quality to him that uh, I could see would speak yeah, across sure, those sure. borders. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. One of the guys um, had been friends with um, Jerry Orbach and was around, uh, was, was, or he worked for Jerry Orbach and he was around when Dylan was also around um, working on Joey, the song Joey about Joe Gallo, whom he'd heard about from, um, from Jerry Orbach. Yeah, he was a famous gangster, shot down right famously <laughs> i mean so that was a, i mean that's an example of a cool thing like you're talking to somebody who was in this room with dylan you know when, during this time um which was no big deal to him because he's not into dylan you know he's into shit you know he's into dean martin Jimmy Roselli was another Jimmy name Roselli, that comes up. right? <laughs> Very popular. Uh, but the the book uh, is also sort of a meditation on uh, aging and death. 
And uh, I, I sort of see these Ama- Italian-American characters as sort of being a, a look in your future sort of as well. You know, you talk about this is how it starts. You're, you're bartering there and everything. <laughs> right, right. True. <laughs> but there are sort of, you know, ghosts of, uh, of Christmas future a bit in there. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. That was, I had the title from the beginning. And that to me is what this book is very much about it's a you know it's about an autumnal romance or you know love story um but it's but it's also about mortality and you know getting to be the age where you you realize you're going to die someday you know you know you rumor, want, you rumor a, is yeah <laughs> i mean you have an understanding of that in yeah. a way that you didn't before yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the the love story of it because that's uh, that's truly the the center of the of the book. Um, in the beginning of the book, uh, when you first hear June, uh, you run into a mutual friend and you ask about her, and uh, I think there you talk about that you 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 first saw June uh, back in the eighties. Why don't you talk about you know, before the relationship and your your first impressions of June back in the day? Well, this is a woman that I had known in the 80s when uh, she worked doing press for bands. And one of them, one of those bands was Perubu. One of the guys in Perubu was my best friend, Tony. and Also uh, from Cleveland. Also from Cleveland. And he had just moved to New York. And I followed him up here and... He was hanging around with June because they were because June was doing the band's press. We met back then, and we would see each other now and then, and cross paths all all the time at clubs. And she came to see me read one time, and you know, so I knew her back then. But I was married at the time, and so nothing ever developed between us. But I always, you know, had a thing for her, and always wondered what happened to her and didn't really know anybody who was in touch with her anymore so something like 25 years went by when we were completely out of touch and I was living in San Francisco and then when I came back I ran into the one person I knew in common with June and she said that uh, she was going to set up a dinner between us among us and so I went to meet the two of them for dinner, and June showed up talking about how she's about to get divorced, can't wait to have her life back, can't wait to have her you know, feet on the ground again and be in control of her own life and be alone. That was the main thing, just be, you know, not have to answer to anybody and just be alone. And I kind of was in the same frame of mind, and, you know, we stayed up talking about that till you know three four in the morning and that was pretty much it you know we were kind of together after that you know um together alone (laughs) and so uh and that's so that's the beginning of this love story that the book is about yeah and then the book sort of covers 10 years of their relationship but just sort of collapses it into a kind of a six-month period, their their first months. Uh-huh. It's like it's almost like if that ten years were a fan, this six months would be just something sketched on the outside of the fan. <laughs> you understand what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like yeah. all the everything that happens in August is in the same chapter of the book, but some of the events took place in August 2010. Some took place in August 2014. Whatever, they're all jumbled up within so that but month. You, but you've sorted these memories through, through seasons, sort of. By season, yeah, yeah. by month. Because mm-hmm. don't you kind of, isn't, doesn't your memory work that way? Like you remember listening to a record in a particular time of year, but not necessarily what year that was. Yeah, it's funny because when I, I, I I've heard you say this that you know we, we all do sort of you know remember things by um, uh, by the the time of year it was or whatever and I, and I want and it sounds so true when you say it I'm not, I, I'm not sure if I, that is the way <laughs> I remember things but I, but but I, I guess in, I, that, but that does make sense that does, you know I'm usually if I well I mean particularly with records I mean you wouldn't remember what time of year a movie came out yeah. But I, records seem like really tied into, um, because you're listening to a new record for, 
for a particular period of time at a particular time of year, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, whatever that time of year is. And so it seems to me that they're forever attached. You know, they're, those things are always kind of enmeshed, except for records that you play so often that they, you know, are no longer, at, you know, records that you play all year round. Yeah, for me, what I, what I right these days, what I really notice is, is those records that uh, were really meaningful uh, for me during the quarantine era there's a certain music i really uh, re revolved to a lot really? of some of it was coming out new some of it wasn't but yeah there's there's artist uh, satoko fuji the japanese pianist uh, the, she made solo records and driving around the empty city in winter you know when nobody was going out or anything like a really profound sort of musical memories for me but do these records have anything in common um no i mean I do they do they have a they, is there any characteristic sound or there is a, I, I think mainly they're they're kind of more spare mm. um some of them really had um sort of positive mes messages or a few records uh, sonic liberation front a, a local philadelphia group uh put out a record uh, with the uh poetry of oliver lake the, the saxophonist from the world saxophone quartet and uh, uh listening to his poetry and driving around always driving around it seems during right. this quarantine thing uh it, it were really uh, you know big moments for me musically lee ronaldo made a pretty cool you know pandemic record of just an acoustic step him playing an acoustic you know sort of ambient sort of sort of stuff um i can't remember the name of it now it's really good though um and i'll like what you're saying very spare yeah is there any other was there any other music you sort of connected with during that time or where, where were you where were you at at the pandemic during the pandemic i was in um, the quarantine well i, I was we were in new york and we were living in a studio as we still do but you know this was you know we were both going to be home from work all day every day living in this studio so at right at the pretty close like when did that all happen and i think in march of 2020 yeah so within a couple of months we had rented a house in a town called fleischman's which is oh i don't know it's in the catskills it's about a half an hour from woodstock and so we were there for three months that first three months were you know probably a lot easier for us than for most people because we were in this beautiful house in the catskills with lots of space but then we went back to the city and then we were there for like two years or a year and a half or something we were there all their time together uh, the last time we've been together actually was about three years ago just before it, we everybody knew it was coming at that point and i remember talking to you like if you think of it like a prison sentence you know it'll be like three months you know <laughs> right 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 I, I can serve three months <laughs> right, it'll, right it'll be okay but uh <laughs> i was a little uh underestimating how long it would take yeah. that, that thing to play itself of course out. yeah I, everybody was yeah. although now that they want us to come back yeah. i'm very resentful of having to do so yeah. you know since we've it doesn't appear to be a reason to do so yeah yeah How did, how did you end up uh, getting the novel to Soft Skull? Uh, the writer, the Chris yeah. Krause. Yeah. Um, I have a friend, uh, Steve Levine. He's a poet. He's friends with old friends with Chris Krause. She asked him at some point for what he was reading lately. He recommended me to her. And uh, so she read a couple of, maybe my chapbook, Creamsicle Blue, and she read, I suppose, what she could find online and told Steve that she uh, she liked what she had read. And so when I finished writing Jacket Weather, I asked her, I wrote to her and asked her if she'd be interested in seeing it, you know, because I figured that maybe she'd be able to recommend somebody I might send it to. And that's what happened. She read it and I wrote me this beautiful email about it, um, about how much she liked it. And she gave me a short list of editors in Yucca 
Igarashi, who was the person who um, acquired it for Soft Skull, was one of those editors. Yeah. Did it involve a lot of editing? Because it's certainly a, a book that uh, I could imagine could be, you know, like Taffy, you know, pulled and uh, pushed a few different ways. Yeah. It. It well, it definitely required a lot of editing. I mean, it was it was already on this. I think the the draft I sent her was maybe the seventh draft, and maybe there were ten. But there were not serious structural changes or anything like that. It was like for one thing, there used to be all these lyrics in it, and then it turned out that that was going to be expensive, way too expensive. I didn't think I would have to pay anything for them, but then you know. Well, anyway, it's too much to get into, but it wound up it was going to be too expensive. And um, what 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 uh, songs were you quoting? What what songwriters were you quoting? Oh, I had all kinds of stuff. I don't even remember now, but some of them were pretty big. Like one of them was Lou Reed, and you know there was a short quote from there was a couple of Lou Reed songs quoted. You know, this one, the the, the song that caused the trouble was uh, "Satellite of Love." And uh, it's just like three or four lines, and um, but that the copyright for that is controlled by Hal David, which you know owned half the lyrics, half of the rest of the lyrics in the book, and from for some obscure legal reason I don't quite understand why, because Lou Reed is one of their premium artists, they were going to have to charge me. $500 to use these four lines. Or no, it might have been a lot more than that, actually. Whatever it was, it was going to cost them that much for every other lyric in the book. Because Lou Reed raises the price for everybody. <laughs> it's crazy. And um, so I took them all out. Yeah. Because I didn't want to fuck around with it anymore, you know. Yeah, I was just watching uh, the commentary of Tree's Lounge, the Steve Buscemi film from the 90s. And... Uh, there's a scene in there where uh, the the young woman uh, talks him into uh, singing like the Munchkins, like she used to when uh, he used to when she was younger, and he sings one line from the Munchkins song from Wizard of Oz, and in the commentary, Buscemi's like, yeah, that would, that cost a lot of money just to have that one line, right, there, right, you know, right. Yeah, I, I imagine that's a a real cause for concern, you know, yeah. uh, if, if you're making movies. I didn't expect it to be in this. Yeah. But uh, but I'm okay with it, you know. I'm, and there and there's still a lot of music in the book. You've always been somebody whose uh, life has been fairly centered around music, so uh, yeah, uh, the music isn't missing from the book at all. Yeah. Oh, that's nice to hear. That's nice. Yeah. You have a, we have one piece that's uh, uh, talks a lot about Maggie May, the, uh, the 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 Rod Stewart song. Yeah. Even though it's a song that you're uh, very familiar with, at one point it really hits you in the moment of the. Uh, uh, that you're in in New York City. Right, right. Yeah. Did you want me to read that? No, not necessarily. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I didn't. Because I didn't mark that one. Okay. <laughs> so you have been out doing uh, doing readings. Uh, what, what, what readings have you done? I, you were back in Cleveland reading this, weren't you? When the when the book first came out, I did a string of readings with Lucy Sant and Adele Berté. And we did readings in um, New York City and Woodstock and Hudson. Then we went to Detroit and read at um, Jack White's Lair um, and, uh, you know, our headquarters. And, um, I think Lair. I think he describes it as a Lair. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> you know, with the record press, pressing play. It was kind of like the Willy Wonka um, <laughs> complex. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, but it was very cool. And uh, and then we went to L.A. to uh, Skylight Books and to and then to the um, to the makeout room at the Mission. Yeah, which was really great because you know I saw a lot of people I knew and people from that and 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 there were other people from that scene like the music scene on the bill, so it was fun. That's when the book first came out, and uh, I haven't done a lot of them since, but I did one here. Um, that's why I'm here at your table. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, I did one last night with Victor Bacris and Tom DeGidio at the Rotunda. Talk, talk, talk about them for a second. It was a really interesting uh, lineup of sort of a New York-centered uh, writers. Uh, Victor Bacris, uh, I was, I was, his name didn't uh, 
Uh, it was vaguely recognized to me, but a, a real fascinating uh, background he has. Uh, he's been a, written about all these really interesting people, like Warhol and Lou Reed. He wrote a biography of Lou Reed. He put the first Velvets book that I remember together, um, the first uh, any kind of book that you could buy about the Velvet Underground. And did I Keith Richards, did I say that? Muhammad Ali, he was interviewing and... He told a story last night about a, a stare down <laughs> between Warhol and uh, Muhammad Ali, which Muhammad Ali was was not the victor. <laughs> yeah, that was a great story. <laughs> yeah, um, how, how, when, how did you uh, when did you first meet him? Oh well, I don't know him. We used to cross paths a lot, or now and then on the Lower East Side, we'd be at the same party because we knew a lot of the same people. I didn't really know him before last night oh I didn't realize that that got set up because about a year ago at a reading in Jersey City I heard Tom DeGidio read a poem that really struck me and I got talking to him and it turned out he knew he was aware of my father and my uncle writers both 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 novelists my uncle Mike Michael DeCapity and my father Raymond he was aware of both of them and so we kind of you know, he read Jacket Weather, and I told him to set up a reading down here sometime. And then when he did, he invited Victor, who because he figured we were all going to be reading about New York, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. It was a kind of a weird mix. <laughs> I thought it was great. I thought it was a nice, yeah. diverse, uh, but but uh, thematic group. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was fun. I was going to have you read another piece from the book. Uh, there's a piece that here that you have that's a. Specifically about uh, June, the, the romance in the, in the book. Uh, about June and winter, as a matter of fact. I woke to the sound of a shovel scraping the sidewalk below. Last night, I walked her to the subway in a blizzard, which was also the year's first snowfall. Snow swirl. It snowed upward. It spiraled down the side streets, hit you broadside at the intersections. Someone was laughing, but you couldn't look up. Then she was laughing, standing in a drift. She stopped walking and just let it go like we were standing in a rowboat that was going down in three feet of water and it was the funniest thing ever. She was able to laugh at herself. And in that laughter, I heard all of life, why we live, even though we suffer and even though we die, why it's still worth it. Headlights floated by. A tall young guy fell in step with us. He was holding the remains of an umbrella over his head. He looked like he'd walked out of a Roadrunner cartoon. He asked where we were going. When we crossed the road to drop off a movie, I said, You're on your own! We heard him through the snow looking for a new friend. He didn't seem to have <clears throat> seen snow before. She said, he must be from California. I missed her, even with her at my side. She turned me inside out, or I'd done it for her. I felt as though my heart was on the outside, beating. There was never enough of her. I could never get close enough, never possess her completely enough as though there were some measure of completeness beyond complete, something beyond now, something in the realm of the imagination, some essence. I thought maybe cannibalism was the answer. To kill an eater right there in the snow. She, came, she claimed to feel exactly the same, but it's hard to know. I kissed her at the subway. She was just a nose and a smile encircled by a snowy hood. I told her to hold the rail and watched her down. The walk home was desolate. Outside my hood was near silence, except for a plastic tarp on a motorcycle snapping in the wind. By the time I made it to my building, my coat and scarf were white. I waited for the elevator with the snow melting off me, missing her, something terrible. Inside my apartment, I locked the door as though protecting what remained of her presence there. The screens were clotted with snow and there were five inches of it on the outside sill. I hung my scarf and coat and gloves in the shower, dried my hair with a towel, 
and went to bed listening to the radiator with the room cast in orange snow light. And this morning I lay there listening to that shovel scrape the sidewalk and then silence. My heart was still on the outside, beating, waiting. It's interesting. I forgot that uh, uh, that was exactly the piece you're going to read there. I, I was thinking that sounds so familiar, and it's because I, I read that aloud to uh, my wife while I was reading. Oh no, kidding! Reading the book, yes. <laughs> um, but it, that it, for me, it brought a very, very interesting. Uh, the, the book was uh, particularly. Um, intriguing to me because it's so at the opposite of where my relationship is. I kind of feel in a way that you know we've been married for 20 years now and, and that uh, freshness of, of meeting each other is something that happened when we were uh, much younger now and, and to uh, see this romance uh, you know through the eyes of uh, somebody in their 50s somebody in my age and a new romance right. uh, it was very interesting I mean I, as, as someone who's uh, you know had a certain uh, Romantic history. Uh, what do you think you, you bring unique to uh, you know the sort of middle aged? It sounds love? very sinister when you put it that way. As someone who's had a certain romantic history, shall we say? You're talking about divorce. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> Uh, not, well, I mean, just just the idea that uh, at the age of fifty, it's, it, you know, that the that uh, you know romantic uh, you know resume is, is is much longer when you're uh, starting a romance at that time. I'm, I I don't know what it would be like to start a romance like that. It's it's not an experience I've I've had. You know what? It's not any different from at any other time. It's you just lose your senses. <laughs> you feel like you're going to throw up all the time, and you you know it's not like something you can resist. Yeah. You know, there may be a point, uh -huh. there may be a point right near the beginning, like with smoking cigarettes, you know, maybe there's a point at which you can still resist, but eventually then you can't resist. See, I think that's my illusion. <laughs> I, I think that, uh, you know, at my age I've matured past that or something. No but, way, uh, <laughs> no way. You're capable of completely <laughs> making an ass of yourself <laughs> at any age, right? I, um, you know, what's that song? They, like old no fool like an old fool <laughs> Billy Shaver has a Billy Joe Shaver has a song like that um, anyway it really doesn't feel that much different from when it happens to you at 15 yeah uh, the jealousy is in there as well that's all in there I don't know it just comes right with the desire yeah. I think for a guy maybe yeah. I, I don't know that <laughs> it's funny because like a couple of a couple of friends have said this to me and I get the idea that they are representative of a larger body of friends. <laughs> like they were the two chosen to come forward to tell me that they found this book, you know, very personal and, and uh, you know... Uh, I said uh, it was a little bit like reading Mike's journal. Yeah, they, 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 they were bothered by it or something. Something like they, they were getting more than they asked for. I think, well, you know? it's interesting. I think uh, from my memory of your body of work, I almost never remember you uh, writing about sex. Yeah, no, right. It's interesting that... Uh, but there's not know. a lot of sex in this book, is oh, there? Oh, it's, it's, it's like the story of O. <laughs> <laughs> you trying to sell copies? <laughs> It's like a cross between the story of O and uh, what's a God's Little Acre, I think. Yeah, yeah, and Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> but it's interesting. Well, I mean, uh, why, why do you think that, uh, you know, at, at 50 was the first time maybe that you've uh, written uh, more sexual uh, stories? Wow, that's a good... Well, I never wrote a love story before. I never wrote a story about two people getting together. I mean, I never wrote... I mean, the, the only sex that I think that happens in um, my first novel, Through the Windshield, there's like a very brief thing. Uh, but the guy's alone the whole time in the book, yeah. right? I, I mean, that's well, part well, of what the book is about. Let me add to this on why, why I asked this question. Now that I remember, years ago, you and I were doing a reading together, which I... 
Barely okay. remember with Dan, I guess, uh, in the oh, mission. Oh, yeah, like in Java Supreme or yeah, Docs or yeah, something? Yeah, I think so, in Java Supreme. And you you told me that uh, the worst thing to write about is sex. I think you had a friend that was writing about sex now. <laughs> and you said there's no way to write about sex with you don't have the... Uh, uh, yeah, where it doesn't where you're get not kind of purple. Or, well, you know. the, the, you're not trying to make yourself look good. Oh, right, right, yes. And so I really looked at that as a challenge, and I wrote a story uh, about my first sexual experience and uh, wanted to see if I could you know, write a sexual story where it wasn't self-congratulatory in some way. Right, it's hard to do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to say it was good even without... It's hard even to say that it was good sex without sort of, you know, saying that that's... I brought the goods. Right, right. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, on a wider scale. I mean, it's written about very obliquely here. It's not, it, right? I mean, it's 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 described fairly obliquely. I don't, there's nothing direct. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that the word pussy is used once in the book. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> but uh, maybe, you know, expanding beyond this. Yeah. Uh, how does June feel about uh, this book that really does uh, open up your romantic relationship? Is it something... Uh, you're, you seem invulnerable to... Uh, to uh, shame. Shame of being <laughs> a big confessional or whatever. But, but poor June, how does she feel about this? You know, she never has complained about it. I think that... Um, I don't know, and she's a she's a fairly private person too. But for some reason, this doesn't bother her. It doesn't seem to. Well, she certainly. I is mean, the... I didn't. It's not like I published this without her having seen it, or you know, given her you, you know a chance to tell me if she was uncomfortable with something. In it. And she it is didn't. a giant love letter to her and all her fabulousness. Right. Yeah. Right, it's not like writing neg something negative about somebody. My worry was that my wife is going to read this and ask why I hadn't written this book about her. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. For some reason, it doesn't bother her, and I don't think of it as being me. You know, because to me, like it's like what I said before. To me, this is a novel. It's not a memoir. Yeah. Even though the guy has my name. <laughs> When did you when did you actually finish writing this? I think I started sending it out to people to publishers in 2019, I guess it was. Yeah. yeah. So what have you uh, been writing about since? I've been writing about the same sorts of things cuz you know, I mean if I hear a conversation that I like, I try and note it down, you know, or if I see something, I mean, I kind of write the way a poet does, you know, about discrete moments more than about stories, you know, I'm just usually focused on a discrete moment, whether that's a conversation or uh you know, something about the light or you You, know, you wouldn't say your books are intricately plotted. No, no. The intricacy comes in when you fit those all pieces all together, because you have, still have to be able to fit them together into something that works, right? It has to have um, some sort of momentum. Yeah, exactly. But no, I wouldn't say that. I don't. I don't give any thought to plot. Yeah. Oh, you asked me what I was writing now. Yeah. The yes. reason that's why I started saying. Um, I've continued to write down these these things when something needs to be written down, but it's only pretty recently that I've started to figure out what kind of what I might shape them into, what I might use them for, yeah. you know, what the book is about basically, or at least what season does it take place in, you know, <laughs> um, and and that's kind of clicked into place for me just over the last 
week, maybe. <laughs> um, so now I kind of know what I'm shooting for. Yeah, I mean, this book really feels like a, a beautiful progression from uh, Through the Windshield, uh, your uh, magnum opus from uh, <laughs> from the 90s, uh, where it really does feel like uh, like what great artists are supposed to do. That you're oh, sort of man. taking nice away, you're, you know, that you're you're telling things with more conciseness and. Uh, more uh, direct poetry, and uh, it really, uh, uh, I can imagine, uh, I can imagine a lot more books out of you, sort of in this style. It seems like you've really found the style, which is uh, very elastic and could really serve your uh, your vision well. Yeah, I, I had that feeling actually while while writing this. First, I wrote this chap. I made this chapbook, which you've seen that creamsicle blue. In a way, that's like a um, like uh, it's it's the first of these, you know. It's like beginning the beginning of a second phase. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. You know, I've become much more interested in consciously, like in, in in the idea of just putting things together. I like things that feel put together more than I like things that feel written from A to B to C. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like at some point. In Dylan's career, like I would say in the mid '90s, it, you really feel like those songs are put together. You know, he had a couple of good lines over here in this notebook, and something else in the, over here. You know what I mean? They really feel put together to me, and and I love I love that. I've always liked that, and as you know, um, I've always liked collage. You know, the first band that I was really into was the Mothers. And so, you know, like I respond to that idea of just, um, you know, making something out of different parts, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so when I, when I wrote Creamsicle Blue, I, I, I felt like, oh, now I found my form. Uh, this, is, this, this is congenial to me, you know. Because one of the things that you're always looking for as a writer is a way to make it easier because it's so hard. Writing is so hard and, and um, you know, it's just really hard. This and doesn't feel like a, a, a book that was slaved over. Yeah, no, well, good. It shouldn't feel like that, even if it was. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, don't, I wouldn't say it was slaved over, but I did write 10 drafts of it and I spent a lot of time at my kitchen table with um, index cards representing different fragments of text and moving them around and yeah. you know to, uh, almost the way you'd plot out of uh, a visual a piece of visual art or something that was taking place all on one surface yeah. which is sort of how I see this mm -hmm. as taking place all on one plane yeah um, I'm reminded peripherally very peripherally of uh, Sam Cooke there was a story that when he was a gospel singer he asked I think it was Renee Hall the guitar player if he could uh, borrow his guitar overnight and Renee Hall showed him three chords and uh, the next day <laughs> Sam Cooke comes back and says look I put something together and he sings you send me for the first time <laughs> <laughs> and renee hall says after it was over he turned to the, the guitar sideways and looked at the strings and said i could make a lot of these <laughs> but in the same sensation i feel like when you got finished this book that uh, uh it, it incorporates all your your, your sort of uh, interest in voices in, in such a beautiful natural way i got the sense of like oh after he's done this he could he could do a lot of these oh I'm and i would glad, like to read a lot of i'm these. glad you're telling me that because i i sort of had that idea too um but you know that was a while ago and then i kind of lost my i i i I lost one idea that I had for this, for, for what the follow-up to this was going to be, and uh, and so then I was kind of at sea for a while, and 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 but your confidence in this, and the fact that you you you're seeing that too, like that this might be a a method that I work for a while in the same way that like you know painters have m motifs or whatever that they do a they do things in series you yeah, know yeah. i mean not that it would be have to be a series but i mean just that i could keep working i, f I think i found my method here yeah you know that's great that's but, it, but 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 it still has to say something 
even though it doesn't seem like this really does. You know what I mean? Oh, no. I mean, I think not... it does say something. I think as as you know, it's funny at first. You know, you're you're just taking in all these sort of anecdotal things, but uh, its purpose and its and its meaning and its drive starts to become. It starts to put itself together very quickly, really. Oh, good. And it, what makes it sort of, I think, really wonderfully modern too is uh, I talk to people that just talk about I don't have the patience to read a novel anymore. I can't read a novel anymore because this isn't uh, long chapters. It's really like you've got enough time to read a couple pages here and you'll you'll get a couple scenes and you right. know it, it's it's not demanding your time and, and concentration uh, in the same way. You can you can sort of uh, um, eat as big a piece of this as you want. Well, it's funny that you make that analogy, that comparison to food, because I was, you know, people have told me that they find this very compelling. In fact, there's this quote here on the front from Lucy Sant. It says, um, you can't stop reading it. But I think really that is um, because it's made of these small pieces like popcorn. So you can, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you, you can just, always, uh, I'll, and, I'll and read you, the next one. And, and it, Right, and you're not committing to anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like you go, oh, well, this next thing is like 15 pages. I don't, you know, I don't have to have. The next thing here is only a paragraph. And, you know, the next thing you know, you've, you've you know. It was a quick read. You've read half the book. Yeah, right. it was a quick read. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, uh, shall we wrap it up here? I think sure. We have, uh, we have anything else you want to uh, get to before we? Uh... No. No, that, that's good. That, I think that was good. If you take out the part about, um, you know, that part where I kind of went astray or you got lost in the... <laughs> that will yeah, all be taken apart for sure. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for uh, coming down and uh, coming to the mic, uh, Michael. Thank you very much. It's been a, been a pleasure. I'll come sit at your table anytime. <laughs> That's it for today's show. You can stream past episodes of Fun to Know Podcast, always with the numeral 2, through SoundCloud and Stitcher. And learn about new episodes from our Fun to Know page over at Facebook. Leave a review of the show at iTunes if you get a chance. Uh, you can find me spinning jazz live from the Bard Studios at WPRB Princeton every Monday at noon. Check out the film screenings I curate every second Thursday of the month at the Rotunda in Philly with the Bright Bulb Screening Series. You can survey my film history classes, which happen seasonally at Fleischer Arts Memorial. And check back soon for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.